Moi, Jamy, le diable faites-vous à quatre pattes. Bien, je cherche les 15 000 francs que vous m'avez rendus, mon cher. Car vous me les avez bien rendus, n'est-ce pas ah, C'est une question de seconde. J'ai été un peu gêné ces temps-ci. Ah, ah, bon, 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 je me disais aussi. Bonsoir, à bientôt. Vous voyez. deep dive into the works of a director called Max Ophels, who's sort of a phenomenal director of the 30s, 40s, and I guess into the 50s. And so far we looked at a couple of Hollywood movies by him, and this is the first foreign language to us, Anglophones, first foreign language movie by him, and it's uh, a French film. It is indeed. And it goes by two titles, because sometimes it's just called Madame D, or De, depending yep. on how you're looking at it, and other times it's the earrings of Madame D. Now, you first mentioned it to me by that title, and I thought, oh, he's off his rocker, it's not the same film. But of course, within seconds of watching the movie, I thought, <laughs> yeah, it would be called something about earrings. Yeah, it, it's very earring-centric. In fact, I can't think of another film where earrings feature so prominently. Yeah, so it's, a, it's set in France, it's set in the 19th century. It's about this aristocratic woman who needs some ready cash. She's married to this very wealthy guy, but she obviously wants some running around money. So she pawns this pair of earrings, which then sets in train one of those movies. It's sort of one of those movies about a, an object passing from one character to another. Do you know what I mean? It almost is, and I'm disappointed that it wasn't. I was kind yeah. of hoping that was the film we were going to get. Yeah. And so I built myself up to that because I adore that kind of film. Because <laughs> you get these little five-minute interludes of different lives, and it works quite nicely. Can you cite the names of some of those movies? I'm not sure I no. can. No. There's one involving a dollar. And I think the only reason I really like the idea of it because I wrote one that we never got round to making when we were at college, um, which was slightly filthier. But yeah, <laughs> I think the Matt Anthony Mann Western Winchester seventy three is about a gun that's passed from hand to hand. I mean, I wouldn't swear to it, but I think that's the case. I've got that somewhere. I'll have a look. It could well be. It doesn't ring any bells to me at the moment. No, I don't think I've seen it. So. She pawns her earrings, and I have to say, at the beginning of this movie, I was just, I found it so witty and delightful. And so, because she's a bit of kind of a scatterbrain, but she's lovely and everybody adores her. And she goes to pawn the earrings, and then her husband notices she doesn't have them when they're at the opera, so she pretends that she's lost them, which sets in train a whole, a whole lot of shit hits the fan, and like they actually start looking for somebody who might have stolen the earrings. And I thought that might be what it, where it was going to go. Do you remember when we did Reckless Moment and I said that as serious as the film is, it almost feels like a farce with no jokes? So um, just for this... the listeners, that's another Max Ophel's movie. That's one of the Hollywood ones. Yeah. And this feels much the same. It, it feels like a farce, which at first has a few jokes in it. There's some yeah. cracking dialogue in it. Absolutely. Um, but then it just becomes horrible. Well, it gets serious because yeah. it's a souffle and then it becomes this cyanide-laced beefsteak, <laughs> which well, is... Straight not... away, just with what we've already said about the film, and then you compare this to the other two O-Force films we've watched. First of yeah. all, we've got a female protagonist. Yeah. Uh, we've got aspiring for wealth. 
we've got pawning goods to pay off debts. <laughs> um, we, we've got fur coats playing an important part. Opals has themes, <laughs> and I don't know if they're deliberate, but Maybe we've only watched three yeah. films, and it's very hard to ignore that there are big similarities between these. I thought it was just going to be this really charming, witty comedy. So, what, Because what happens is she's pretended she's had, had the ear, lost the earrings or maybe they've been stolen. That This is big news. And the guy, the pawnbroker, learns of this. He contacts the husband who really charmingly just buys the, the, the earrings back and completely, he's, he completely covers for his wife. Like He's so sort of forgiving of her, her wacky indiscretions. But then, in a surprise turn, we expect him to give the earrings back to his wife instead he gives them to his mistress who's leaving for constantinople and this is perhaps one of those bits of dialogue you you were going to mention because uh, he says something about her leave she's leaving him he, he's not leaving her and she says one of the ways of leaving a woman is to let her leave you which i thought was great and this is one of those scenes where they're getting on a you know a train and there's steam coming out at the station it's a lovely scene prior to that there's a sequence where she his wife uh, what's her name? Louise? Louise? Louisa? Something like that? I just think of her as kind of the airhead. Because <laughs> uh, she's not actually supposed to have a, a surname, is she? That's the whole... Well, that, the reason it's called Madame Doe, which is Madame of dot dot dot, it's like Madame X. It's there yeah. hiding her surname. Um, she claims to have lost them at the opera. And yep. so they have a search for them and her husband goes out and bumps into someone that he hasn't seen for a while. And they make a joke where he says, are you looking for the 15,000 francs you owe me? And the guy says, I'll pay it back soon. He said, sure. And he goes, well, I'll see you soon. And he goes, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's full of really good dialogue. I really like that. I think that's workable in something else. Um, but again, the, the, the Opal's um, budget saving comes into force at that opera because it is basically just a backdrop with a guy yelling silence for the musical, which is very clever. And He's an extremely resourceful director visually and in other ways. I mean, the problem with this film, and I've written it down quite late into the film I wrote this down, is he really likes his mirrors. And then, Jesus, he really likes his mirrors. <laughs> and it becomes obsessive. And then when I looked it up, it turns out that he wanted to shoot the entire film as reflections. That would be annoying. It would be ridiculous and pointless. And I don't understand why that would be a good idea. I don't really understand the theme of the mirrors in this as it is. Um, I, it seems visually very distracting and whereas normally his little tricks and toys with the camera are fine and there's some great clever shots and they're very well done but I don't understand why he's doing it, it the obsession bring, with mirrors yeah it doesn't bring anything to the film I it didn't just notice it but full marks to you for spotting that really you, you didn't spot all the reflections or you did the, I did not the thing is with Ophel's well, I always rave about the beauty and fluidity and poetry of his camera work, but he's actually so good that you don't notice what he's doing. You just get caught up in the unfolding of the tale. I would agree with that in Court especially, but in this one, not so much. Um, court, again, was one of the Hollywood movies. C-A-U-G-H-T, not Court as in courtroom yeah. drama. I am going to upload these in order. <laughs> yeah, but people won't dip in in order necessarily, so th this helps people to cross-reference. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, as you say, the um, what have I got here? The train platform. I think what we're going to agree oh, on yes. is that, yes. right. the train platform. This really bugs me. Okay, we were talking about his, um, he was using a, a dolly 
to move the, the camera around. And he uses that again in this film rather than track on the train platform. And the shot is one of the most inept I've ever seen. <laughs> it's terrible. That's unusual to hear about a Max Ophel shot. Yeah, it sweeps down the train platform at quite a high speed, but it rattles and wobbles all over the place. There's no control over it. It's very unattractive to watch, and it should have been a beautiful shot. And if it was on track, it would have been great. And I don't understand why there's no track there. We it... need a commentary track to, to explain these things. Unfortunately, both in the uh, Second Sight DVD I've got and the uh, BFI Blu-ray, there's, there is no commentary. There are some extras which are mostly interviews of, of French people who worked with him with subtitles, which sit, um, you know, I don't want to seem like a... <laughs> A xenophobe, but I, I found it a bit hard wading through those. So I didn't have my usual joyous immersion in the extras because there wasn't anything very useful. And which is interesting because this is considered to be quite an important film. Yeah, well, that's my surprise as well. I looked up to see if I could find any kind of writing on this, and all I can find are more contemporary reviews which say how great it was rather than, uh, sorry, contemporary now, rather than reviews that came out at the time, which I'd much rather read just to see how it was received at the time. There's not a lot of yeah, writing about yeah. it. Um, there's no, I don't even think it's in Cahiers. Um I did do a search on there, but maybe earrings was two words. It's just occurred to me. There's a, a quote about. by uh, Francois Truffaut on the cover of my DVD that says, Theodore Ophels was one of the greatest French film directors, which is fun because, of course, Ophels, I believe, was German, wasn't he? <laughs> That's very true. But he's got a point because this does... Uh, yeah, I know it's set in France, but it's got a very French feel to it. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing that's because of the crew and everyone else, which is really even more odd because you've got Vittorio De Sica in there, who's Italian. Um, oh, does he play the Italian count? Uh, yeah, the Baron. Baron. He's Donati, yeah. He's a great character. I didn't know it's De Sica. That's very interesting. Isn't it weird? Because, um, I, I mean, I really like Vittorio De Sica, but I wasn't expecting him to turn up in this film. So Does he usually have a tash? Is that why I didn't recognise him? Do you know, he looked a bit like Cesar Romero in this. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know because I've I've only seen him direct I've not really seen him act that much uh, there's another witty line where they, they say to the general the general is is our heroine's husband I did I don't know you were deaf presumably because he's turning a deaf ear to something and he says it's the artillery you know because <laughs> he's an artillery general <laughs> well there's there's also the two guys at the opera there's um two doormen who have to no, get I up love and that open bit. the door was, that's a lot of fun wasn't it? Goes, uh, yeah if that door opens again I'm not getting up <laughs> I love yeah, that because <laughs> these are the private boxes, and they you they have, because they're rich people's private boxes. There's two guys; their job is just to open the doors for rich people going back and forth between the boxes. In this case, to look for a pair of earrings that were never lost in the first place. Yeah, I think what work uh, made that work was that they did it. I think three, maybe four times before they did the joke, and we were all thinking it. <laughs> I think yeah. it works really well. I've written um, so witty uh, as one of my notes. Now, so the earrings are now in possession of the general's mistress. She's off yes. to Constantinople, where the first thing she does is to lose everything she's got at roulette. Brilliantly. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and the, the thing is, what I loved about this is, I mean, it, I was screaming for her not to do it. She bets all her money on 13. Now, the odds against any number coming up, any individual number coming up in roulette are astronomical. Well, but, the thing with roulette is that that's not really the case, because there are no odds. You have implied odds, but essentially it could land anywhere. So it's the same odds for every number. Every number, but the thing to do in roulette, if you're going to bet, would be to bet black or red, where at least you've got a 50-50 chance, right? Well, you still don't have a 50-50 chance. That's the weird thing. It's something like a 30-70 chance. 
because that's how odds work in you've game. Because you've got this, a green, you've got the zero as well. So the zero is what gives you trouble because that's not black or red. You could lose it anyway, yeah. Yeah, but, so this is, but this is the thing. Most people with roulette, if they play roulette constantly, will nearly always bet on the same number. They'll go half odds or quarter odds on that number so you can bet on the half or Well, it's corner. totally irrational. I mean, it, if, it, if you're it, saying that... All gambling is irrational. <laughs> yeah. But her, her, her method is no less bizarre. It makes more sense to put it all on one number than not on any number. I think Sandy Toxvig was telling a story. I can't remember what it was on. And she said that she was at a casino and she'd put all her money on one number and won and was so excited that she didn't take it off for the next spin of the wheel and won again. And someone said, just go. <laughs> yeah. Just leave. Do not do anything else. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank heavens. Uh, now, Sorry, I got distracted. <laughs> that's right. But the thing about that scene, which I wonder if you noticed, so she bets all the, all, all the money on 13, all her chips on 13, they, they mm. sweep it away and then she bets all the rest of her chips on 13. And then they sweep that away. And the thing is, you then realize that the number 13 is brighter than all the other numbers on the table because nobody ever bets on it. So it <laughs> never gets rubbed. All the other numbers have been rubbed by it constantly having chips on them. <laughs> but this one never does. And I just thought that was a fantastic touch. I found it quite weird. I was reading a book on roulette, believe it or not. This is how life goes for me sometimes. And I nearly always go for Red 5, um, just purely because that was Luke's X-Wing in Star Wars. So it's always <laughs> yeah. the one I've stuck with. You know, red you're five nuts. The, the one totally I'll always nuts. bet on. Yeah, but there's no point betting on all the others. If you're going to win, you're going to win big. And it turns out that loads and loads of people favour red five. For the same know. reason, do you think? No, because it, this book goes back to early 20s. And a lot of the research on the, the odds of roulette were done in the 30s, just prior to the big casinos opening up around Vegas. They were properly looking into how you could beat a casino. I can't remember who wrote the book now, but uh, it's a fantastic book. So anyway, Shiny 13, yeah. I thought that's a lovely touch. Somebody's <laughs> actually thought that through. Nobody ever puts their chips on 13 except she does. So she then pawns the earrings. The earrings end up in the possession of this, did you say he was a count or a baron? Baron. Baron, uh, who's Dececa. Donati? Yeah, that's it. Donati is exactly right. Yeah. Well remembered. And he sees our heroine, Madame De, in passing, falls in love with her. And the rest of the movie is about them sort of circling around each other. Now, I've written, uh, uh, this is such a great movie, at the point of the betting on 13. However, my opinion did change somewhat. I think this is the least satisfactory of the Ophels we've seen so far. Yeah, it becomes a bit of a slog. And it's because it's not fun anymore. And It ceases to be fun because they get very serious about the romance between uh, Donati and our heroine. And her husband isn't wild about that. And I thought, I did think at one point, hey, isn't this the age when men who, whose wives were being approached by the men challenged them to duels? And sure enough, that's what it turns out to be. Yeah. A strange duel as well. I've never seen a duel where you get a best out of three. <laughs> I, I don't, well, I don't know much about duels. Maybe that's, that's the way that they're done. But the thing is, as you say, it ceases to be fun. I mean, the, the love affair bit, is, there's some good bits in it, like uh, their catchphrases, I don't love you, which is kind of fun. Mm. and the photography remains great and, and there's I love the way that her servants are all you know conspiring to help her in this illicit affair but the well, it's almost a done movie, thing isn't it yeah. the, the fun goes out of the movie and the energy kind of goes out of the movie it, well this is why I think the earrings could have moved around a bit more um, yeah. before getting back to them and then we could have returned to them 
Um, I think there was promise in Constantinople of following the mistress around and seeing what happened because she just disappears without trace, which is a bit of a shame. Because um, she's actually quite, her, I can't remember who the actress was, but she was she was good, but she's only got about nine lines. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she was excellent. Yeah, I felt um, so bad for her losing everything. So what happens is Donati gives the uh, the woman her earrings. Uh, she has to pretend to have found them because mm. remember she pretended to have lost them. So she finds them, and her husband, of course, is not fooled at all. Because although he might be a bit baffled about what happened after he gave them to his mistress. You see, I absolutely loved that. I thought that was a fantastic situation to write where she thinks she's pulled it off. He knows yeah. that they're definitely not the same earrings. Yeah. But also, he can't do much about it because he has to admit that he's been having an affair as well. Yeah. In order to know. And but the, and I thought that would go on. I thought that would be quite a fun situation for him to have yes. the upper hand on it. But he almost immediately turns into a massive twat. Yes, because up to this point of being completely indulgent of his kind of kitten of a wife... He suddenly and, changes. And he's quite a fun character up to that point. Like you said, yes. he's so charming when the jeweller comes in three times or more with his <laughs> earrings to sell them again. Yeah. Which never stops being funny. Yeah, but then he turned, basically turns into the heavy, doesn't he? Yeah, it's a shame because it spoils the dynamic of the film. Um, he's, he, there is, um, he does have a line around that point, uh, which is a, a recurring theme that his wife, uh, Louise, to get out of awkward situations, has a habit of fainting. That's right, yeah. And he has this great line, because he's, he knows they're fake faints anyway, but they're in the cab on the way home, and he says, uh, I'd appreciate if you didn't let your fainting spells go on quite so long. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's one other line of dialogue, actually, I've written down here, but I'm not entirely sure where it comes in the film. But I believe it's when Louise is writing to the Baron, and she says, it's when we have the most to say we can't speak which I thought was a nice line. Yeah, the thing is, it's a delightful, witty comedy, and then it's quite a touching love story, but they're yeah. two different movies, and they move to a place that I felt was appropriate for neither of them. Yeah, it, I would like to have one or the other, um, but both doesn't really work, because there's two acts. It's such a tonal shift that it doesn't doesn't work. And it's and odd, I because it's such a well-received film, which I'm surprised about. I don't like an unhappy ending in either of those genres frankly and the unhappy ending is of course just a leap ahead that there is a duel which takes place completely out of shot hmm. uh, we just hear a gunshot and uh, the implication is that Donati's been shot dead by the general not surprising because the general's a crack shot and then the, um, our heroine collapses in one of her faints for real and apparently we're supposed to have believed that she died too yeah well that's not particularly implicit and it's another very sudden ending from Ophuls which we've had three films now with odd endings where it almost feels like you know they still had a week's worth of stuff to shoot but just said that we'll call it a day today this is a particularly uh, this is the most unsatisfying of the three mm. yeah I can't think of any other way of reading it it's a real pain because you sit through a lot of film here to get to this point. You want some satisfactory ending. Yeah. I would at least have liked something more emphatic to say that she was dead. Because it is implied, yeah, just, this memory serves. It's, uh, oh, because the, it's implied because we then cut to the church, don't we? Where the earrings have been left as an offering? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, anyway, it's very clear that we're supposed to think that she's dead. And so this is a movie that went off the rails, I, I thought. I was really disappointed. I don't want to come across sounding like it's a terrible movie because it's a movie that's well worth seeing. Yeah. But it's a disappointment. 
by the high standards of Max Ophels, I would have said. And I don't think it's as technically enjoyable as his other two American films. Uh, There's not a lot. There's one sequence that I I did really like, which is where um, she keeps writing letters to the Baron but never actually posting them. And she tears one up and throws it out the train window. Oh, that and was cool, yeah. It slowly turns into snow on a tree and then yeah. comes into a window. And it's it's not a particularly accomplished shot. It's it's pretty hard-handed fade, but it works so well because everything's paced right. The speed of the letter falling, the speed of the snow is just yes. right. Yeah, um, They get away with it. It's a really nice shot. But it's worrying that in a, I think, two-hour-plus film, that is the only shot that really stood out. And Unusual for Ophels because I wonder if money could... I wondered if he was constrained by the fact it's a costume drama with period sets, whereas before he'd been shooting, although not not necessarily shooting on location, they were he was shooting the period that it was. Like it was the forties, and that's what he was shooting. Well, I suppose also it might be a bit intimidating having to seek her on set. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a good director there. It, I can't. It can't be fun for actors to direct directors, uh, for directors to direct actors, directors to direct directors. Jesus, what are you, Christ. What are you trying to say? <laughs> or like. Um, Oh, I, I hate closing. So, Tzika is a that. famous director, is what you're saying? Yeah, and yeah. you've got you know, Ophels is having to direct another director, and you've was got he to... a famous director at the time this film was made? Um, well, I would have thought so. I mean, Bicycle Thieves was forty. My God, I didn't what? realize that. Of course, that's who he was. He, so he and he was the director of the kind of films that were the antithesis of this Italian neorealism. I mean, he yeah. did uh, Umberto D, Gold of Naples, stuff like that. He. You know, De Sica's a, a big old name. Let me just double-check which years they were, because I'm pretty sure it's 40-something for Bicycle Thieves. Yeah, I'm sorry not to be able to rave more about this, because I went into this thinking, rubbing my hands with glee, thinking this is another Ophuls, you know, hooray. And the early sequences were so promising, and it was a very different kind of Ophuls, because both those other, both the Hollywood ones are kind of noirish melodramas. So I thought, yay, we're in a new territory kind of, French, witty, delightful, souffle, hooray, hooray, hooray. But it turns out not to be like that, unfortunately. Yeah, it's safe to say that De Sica was a very, very established director by this stage. Um, but did he do a lot of acting? Yes. Besides this? Yeah, quite a lot. And it's weird because I've never really con- considered him an actor and I've never really noticed him as an actor in things. Um, but possibly just because I'm watching for the films more than anything else. Yeah, well, that's what I was banging on about moustache because I was thinking that he was this Italian leading man. I've completely blanked on the fact that he was one of the great directors of the century. Yeah, it's a strange coupling. I'm very keen now to go back to Ophel's very, very early work in Germany. And well, watch they're, some, especially listen, dude, they're difficult to locate. I'm, I'm having a lot I've of trouble already finding stuff. I've acquired them, don't worry about that. I've um, yeah, well, been delighted four. to watch them. In fact, I want to watch his first Hollywood movie, which is sort of a, like a, an Errol Flynn... Robin Hood kind of knockoff, you know, a period swashbuckling drama called yeah. something like The Unvanquished or The Betray. Anyway, it's no. it is. But yeah, I've got, I've got a couple of the German ones, so we've got that in hand. I'm just trying to find subtitles now. Excellent. <laughs> so once we've got those, we're laughing. But um, yeah, this was surprisingly disappointing. And I'd, yeah, I'm, so, I'm sorry, but I'm glad we agreed. Yeah, well, I mean, that, that says a lot because we've only seen three of his films and really liked the other two. And it's interesting that the one with all the money behind it was more disappointing. And I yeah. wonder if he's a, a better director when painted into a corner. Well, I need uh, some kind of useful commentary on this in a book or something. Unfortunately, the, the best available book is about his Hollywood period. So this is a bit of a blank. Hmm. It's odd that there's no writing on this. 
because it, it's a well-known film. I'd heard of it, you know, over the years. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd argue it's probably his best-known film. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, well, I'll, there's not much else to, to say about it. No, we'll have to check that out. There'll be more Ophuls in the future, but not for a little while. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. Napoléon a eu tort que deux fois dans sa vie. À Waterloo, et quand il a dit qu'en amour, la seule victoire, c'était la fuite.